everybody. We've been slacking a little bit. So we actually have fewer followers on social media than Twiggy the Water Skiing Squirrel. So we need your help to fix that. Click the link in the show notes or add us on Twitter and Instagram at Invisible Choir or on Facebook at Invisible Choir Podcast. Also, we have a special announcement. If you haven't noticed already, we've added Invisible Choir Plus to Apple Podcasts, meaning you no longer have to go sign up for Patreon for weekly bonus episodes. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app on our page, where you'll also enjoy early ad-free versions of our regular episodes, including part two of this series. Right now, we're offering a free three-day trial, giving you instant access to over 190 bonus episodes. So check it out and subscribe for just $4.99 per month or $49.99 for an entire year if you're looking to add a little more Invisible Choir to your life. Now, on with the show. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My first reaction was I, I, I physically had to sit down and and and, um, and just dwell on the reality of what I just heard. Marriage. It can be a scary thing, sure. Even if you're positive you've found the so-called one, it's an overwhelming concept entering into a legal contract with another human being for the rest of your natural life. It's a lot to think about. But have you ever thought about the possibility that you may have married the wrong person? If the entire time you and your significant other were together, that they'd been lying and weren't at all the individual they portrayed themselves to be before entering into that lifelong legal contract. Fortunately for most of us, we'll never encounter that type of betrayal in our marriages up close and personal. With that being said, not everyone is as lucky, and sometimes people find out the hard way that their husband or wife is but a stranger passing through the same house in the night. At 6.31 a.m. on Sunday, April 25th, 2010, 911 dispatchers received two calls back-to-back from the same phone number. The person on the other end hung up both times, but called back again a minute later at 6.32. This time, the operator managed to keep the woman on the line. It was 25-year-old Heidi Furcus of St. Paul, Minnesota. State Patrol 911. Heidi can be heard breathing heavily while informing 911 dispatch that someone is actively breaking into her and her husband's home, located in the Hamlin Midway section of town. What address are you at? 1794. 1794 what? 911, what's your emergency? State with 1794-Minnehaha-Avenue-Minnehaha-Someone's-Trying-West-The-Caller-Doesn't-Seem-Totally-Panicked-But-She's-Clearly-Frightened-And-Breathing-Heavily-Then-At-Approximately-38-Secon
I don't know where she went there. The dispatcher continues relaying the emergency to first responders after the caller's connection ends abruptly. Do you know if it was any uh, east or west? West, I believe. It's coming in off uh, the west side. And I think she said west. All right, we'll try to get her a call back. Thanks. Thanks. Dispatch tries calling the woman's phone back twice, but both went straight to voicemail. Then just 60 seconds later at 6.33 a.m., her husband calls back, soon to be identified as 27-year-old Nicholas Furcus. On his 911 call from his wife's phone, Nick can be heard in a desperate state of panic. State Patrol 911. Okay, are you in St. Paul, sir? Okay, hold. Let, let me get you right in there. Hold on one second. Okay, hold on. Hold on a sec. Okay, they'll be right with you. Hold on one second with me. Nine one one. Okay, hi. This is the one on uh, in St. Paul. Go ahead, sir. No, sir. No. Hello. No. Can you tell me where you are? Nicholas Furcus has somewhat unintelligibly informed dispatch that he's just been shot inside of his own home by an intruder. The dispatcher tries to get him to slow down and to breathe so she can effectively communicate with him, but he continues talking in broken sentences while hyperventilating. The dispatcher confirms that Nicholas Furcus has been shot, but seems to have missed the first part of his frantic cry for help. That his wife Heidi, who had made the first call to 911, had also been shot. Nick Furcus continues wailing even louder over the phone, but has yet to coherently relay that his wife has also been injured. Over two minutes into this 911 call, the operator still has no idea that his wife Heidi has been gravely wounded. The only information the 911 dispatcher has at this point is that the caller has been shot in his leg and that the intruder was wearing some type of hooded sweatshirt. Almost three minutes in, Nicholas Furcus mumbles that his wife has been hurt, but they still don't hear him. Are you the only one that's injured? No, 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 Nick, 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 listen to me. Did you shoot back? No. 
defend yourself? Yeah. Okay, where is your weapon at? It's laying in, uh, laying in front. It's laying in the front. It's not in your hand? No. Did you fire back? What? Did you fire back? No, I did not. Okay. While it's difficult to understand, Nick Ferkus explains that while the intruder, who was wearing a hooded sweatshirt, was trying to break in, he woke up his wife and grabbed his gun. Again, you can barely hear what he's saying, but he does say that he and his wife then attempted to flee downstairs and go out through the garage door. But it's not until roughly three and a half minutes into the call when Nicholas Ferkus finally utters the following words clearly. My wife is dead. You just stay on the phone and, and talk to the police, okay? My wife is, she's dead. I need someone here now. Right, we're getting help out there right now. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Well, you said your wife is shot also? Yeah, she's not moving, she's not breathing. Oh, please. Okay. She's on the back. Nick, stay with me. I'm going to help you. I need you to stay with me, okay? It isn't until 3 minutes and 24 seconds into this 911 call when Nick Ferkus finally enunciates properly that his wife has been shot and killed. News that seems to come as a complete shock to both the dispatcher and the medical personnel who are both still on the line. Authorities arrived at the couple's home on Minnehaha Avenue West with guns drawn. They immediately noticed the front door had been cracked open, roughly one inch. They proceeded with extreme caution because they weren't sure if the intruder was gone or still in the house. Upon entering, responding officers recognized the distinct smell of gunpowder still lingering in the air. Nicholas Fergus remained on the phone with 911 dispatch until he was located in the kitchen as could be heard at the end of a near 7-minute 911 recording. According to the official report, Nick Ferkus was seen leaning over his wife's body as she lay sprawled out on the kitchen-tiled floor. He was in a state of emotional disarray, consistent with that which was just heard on the 911 call. In addition, he had suffered a single gunshot wound to his upper left thigh. His wife Heidi Ferkus was found unresponsive, lying on her back with her feet facing the main entryway of the home. Her body was positioned just under 15 feet from the couple's front entryway door. Blood was found in her hair and on her face, and she appeared to have suffered a single gunshot wound to the back. Shortly thereafter, Heidi Ferkus was pronounced dead on the scene. While her grieving husband, Nicholas, the lone survivor of the terrifying early morning home invasion on St. Paul's quiet west side, was transitioned to nearby Regions Hospital for treatment. This episode is brought to you by Cerebral. Look, a lot of you listening right now know the difficulties with finding a great therapist. 
There's issues with inflexible scheduling, difficulty connecting with and finding a therapist that you like, and just the stigma of sitting in that waiting room. I've been there myself. Cerebral is a 100% online mental health service that offers expert therapy and medication management for anxiety, depression, insomnia, stress, burnout, and more. Cerebral wants everyone to have a strong start to their mental health journey. That's why they're offering strong start packages that reward you with a discount when you commit to a longer-term mental health plan. Cerebral is here for anyone who's looking to find a flexible mental health care with a licensed and credentialed care team. And it's 100% online. You take a brief assessment and receive personalized care team recommendations based off your needs and preferences. Our listeners will receive access to Cerebral's Strong Start Package, which allows you to save up to $160 when you buy two or four months of care in advance, depending on plan selection. Let's do this together. Make a strong start to a better you. Get started at Cerebral.com slash invisible. That's Cerebral.com slash invisible for quality mental health care that's accessible and affordable. Join Cerebral today. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. Let me ask you one simple question. Are you confident that your family would be taken care of if you unexpectedly died tomorrow? As a parent, your top priority is always your children's well-being. You want to give them everything they need to grow and thrive both now and in the future. With term life insurance from Fabric by Gerber Life, help protect your family so their future is secure no matter what happens. Fabric's new lower prices could mean potentially significant cost savings over other providers, with great quality policies, like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. And you know what? It takes less than 10 minutes to apply, see your quote, and then personalize your quote to fit your family's needs. You could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. So let me ask you that question again. Are you confident that your family would be taken care of if you unexpectedly died tomorrow? Make sure that they are. Protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Apply today in just 10 minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Nick and Heidi met back in 2003 at the Calvary Church in Roseville, Minnesota. Heidi was 18 at the time, having just graduated high school, and Nick, a couple of years her senior at just 20 years of age. Almost immediately, the two became an integral part of their church community and each other's lives. They started dating not long after they met, and early photos of the two can be found of Heidi laughing and Nick with a mouthful of braces smiling ear to ear. They were both devoutly religious and served as youth group leaders at the church. Heidi taught Sunday school as well. They spent many years leading summer camps together at the Calvary Church where they would take their groups of kids camping all throughout northern Minnesota. They were respected, loved by many, and in love with each other. A friend of theirs would even go as far to say that she hoped to one day find the kind of love that Nick and Heidi had, a love that had been so senselessly cut short. After just two years of dating, the young couple wasted no time at all in getting married in 2005. Then by 2007, they bought their first home together, the same home Heidi Furkus would ultimately be shot to death in just three years later as a result of a home invasion gone terribly wrong. The day of the incident, and while still at the crime scene, Nicholas Furkus was eventually able to calm down enough 
to articulate more of what happened to police. He said he couldn't be sure if it was one or two people who had broken into their home. But once he realized what was happening, he said he grabbed his shotgun and that he and Heidi started fleeing toward the back door. Nick told police that before they could get away, the suspect was already inside their home. He said the man grabbed the gun away from him before using it to shoot and kill Heidi and striking Nick once in the leg. This all seemed to be fairly aligned with what was previously communicated during the 911 call. And Nick's story seemed consistent enough coming from someone who had just made it out alive after what most people would consider their absolute worst nightmare come to life. Before the ambulance took him away, Nick Ferkus was asked again what race the suspect was. He again told authorities that he wasn't sure due to the fact that the man who'd wrestled the gun away from him was wearing a hooded sweatshirt. Back inside the home at the now active crime scene, Nick's double-barrel shotgun was located pointing toward and located just inches from the front door. He would later tell police that he used the gun for hunting and that he always kept it stored in his upstairs closet. The front door also had damage to the wood's interior, obvious markings from shotgun pellets, which were consistent with having been fired from Nick's weapon. The crime scene photos show indentations from shrapnel that had sprayed about 36 inches high up past the doorknob from one of the two spent shells. Investigators also noticed what appeared to be tool markings, an indication that someone had chiseled several small chunks out of the door's wooden frame near the door jamb next to the deadbolt. The deadbolt appeared to be in its original state and did not seem to have been damaged. There were also several items found directly adjacent to the front door where the intruder allegedly made his way in. On a small table there in the foyer, investigators found a plastic water bottle, a paper receipt, and a single bottle of India-style rye ale beer from a local Summit Brewery. Surprisingly, all of these items were somehow left undisturbed during the reported struggle that took place just moments before Heidi Furcus was killed. There was also a pair of Nick's jeans nearby that he told authorities he dropped while trying to get out of the house. Later on that very morning, police were already canvassing the area to try to find out if anyone had heard or seen anything. This wasn't a rough area of St. Paul by any means, but residents had reported having their cars broken into before and other normal petty theft. But nothing like what happened the morning Heidi was killed inside of her own home. Unfortunately, none of the neighbors witnessed anyone fleeing from the Fergus residence, and there were no home surveillance cameras which captured a suspect either. When canines were brought in to try to pick up a scent, none of the dogs were able to make a hit on which way the suspect may have run. Over at the hospital, Nick Furcus remained hysterical as he was treated for the single gunshot wound to his leg. While there, he was informally questioned by police. By now, Nick was able to elaborate even more on what had happened. He told investigators that he got out of bed early that morning to get a drink of water from the upstairs bathroom when he heard someone trying to break in downstairs or what he referred to as, quote, a fiddling at the door. Nick said he ran into the bedroom to wake his wife, and then they both ran into their closet to hide. He then claims Heidi called 911 from the closet while he loaded the shotgun that he kept stored nearby. While Heidi was on the phone with dispatch, Nick said the two of them began to make their way downstairs. He explains that just as they got to the bottom of the stairs, that's when they saw the front door fly open, and while running toward the rear of the house, the intruder grabbed him in the foyer. Nick said he tried to wrestle the man away, stumbled, and that his gun went off. He then says that's when Heidi was shot. 
Before leaving the emergency room, Nick told law enforcement that the intruder was possibly a black male. A new detail, which had come to light since his original response of, I'm not sure, back at the crime scene. Nick continued repeating that the man was definitely wearing a hooded sweatshirt, and that the hood had been tightly drawn around the man's face. But Nick would also mention that the suspect had apparently been wearing a pair of sunglasses and some gloves, both of which were also new developments. When asked if he saw any kind of tool in the intruder's hand, which might have been used during the break-in at the front door, Nick said that he couldn't tell, and made no mention of any other weapon inside the house aside from his own shotgun being present a weapon which had been fired twice inside their home, one shot hitting his wife in the back as she ran toward their garage, the other hitting Nick in the upper thigh. After three hours of medical treatment and while being questioned by police, Nicholas Ferkus was free to leave the hospital, but under his own volition, he was immediately escorted to the St. Paul Police Department for a second round of thorough questioning. At 10.15 a.m. that very morning, the door to a private interrogation room opens as Nick hobbles in on crutches. He's still wearing a pair of baby blue hospital scrubs he had been given earlier that morning. Here, Nick would meet with Sergeant Gray of the St. Paul Police. At almost the exact time police began recording their interview with Nicholas Ferkus, Sunday service at Calvary Church, where he and Heidi attended every weekend, was just getting underway. Even though the violent attack had just happened hours before that morning, Word had already gotten out. During the service, friends and family members shared quiet rumblings amongst one another. Things they'd heard regarding what had happened to Nick and Heidi. All that anyone knew for sure was that both had been victims of a violent crime and that both were currently in the hospital. Back in that private interrogation room, Nick lets out an audible moan as he painfully sits down in a chair. But aside from his physical wounds, he seems relatively relaxed and even laughs three minutes in when he awkwardly forgets his wife's birthday, the woman who had just been shot and killed less than four hours before. You remember her date of birth? 121584. I'm sorry, 121584. Sergeant Gray starts off with the usual softball questions, asking Nick to recount the details from the day before leading all the way up to the morning of the home invasion. Nick said that on Saturday, April 24th, 2010, he woke up at around 10 o'clock in the morning. He ventured off to a nearby cafe by himself and brought his wife home some breakfast in bed. Shortly thereafter, he ran a few errands and spent the remainder of the afternoon at home by himself. Heidi had plans to go with a friend to nearby Mall of America in Bloomington and Nick met with his wife at their home shortly before she took off for the day and handed her 30 to $40 in cash that he had in his wallet. It was a little extra spending money. After Heidi returned later on that evening, Nick said they hung out, watched the movie Avatar, and enjoyed a glass of wine each before heading off to bed around midnight. Regarding Sunday, the morning of Heidi's murder, Nick was sure to remind Sergeant Gray that he and his wife actually had planned on attending church that morning. Well, because I get up for work about 6 every morning, yeah, I kind of got up, but we didn't need to be up until about 9 to go to church. So I got up and went and got a glass of water uh, from the bathroom. Okay, so you woke up about what time? About 6 a.m. At this point, Sergeant Gray has offered Nick an extra chair for him to prop his leg up with, an attempt to make him feel more comfortable after withstanding a shotgun blast to his left thigh at close range earlier that morning. 
Nick went on to say that he woke up early Sunday to get some water from the upstairs bathroom, water he allegedly drank straight from the faucet. Regardless, Nick said he fell back asleep for about 15 minutes, but woke up again when he heard the screen door open downstairs. Nick also explains that he noticed the motion light outside their house never turned on, so he fell back asleep again. And that's when he heard someone attempting to break in. Well, then he just come like this? Yeah. Kind of like that? Yeah, just shaking the knob and okay. shutting the door. All right. You know, just shaking the knob. When asked by detectives if Nick had locked the deadbolt the evening before, he responded by saying that he and Heidi were, quote, usually pretty religious about doing so, but then goes on to say that he might have forgotten to do so the evening before. Sergeant Gray then asks Nick about his shotgun and how Heidi felt about it being openly stored in their upstairs bedroom closet. She ever get upset because you had the gun sitting there? She did. Um, she didn't like it there, um, but... What I told, you know, a couple other things I told her as well is if, if for any reason we're ever in a situation that's not safe, um, it'll be in the basement. Plus, it really started to rust out really bad being in the basement. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the, probably the driest places in the house that I could keep it. Okay. Sergeant Gray then asks Nick why he didn't keep the gun locked up. Is there a reason why he didn't keep it in a, in one of the, Cases then? Or? Well, what I, what I heard um, from my friend Peter is if you keep it in the case and it case traps humidity, yeah. then continue to do that. Okay. If you continue to corrode out. So, and it, it hasn't been up there a month. Okay. I probably brought it up a month ago, so I wanted to let the case dry out and let the gun come in. I oiled it and then I wanted to let it breathe for a little while. So, how long have you owned this thing for? The gun? Yeah. Um, probably three or four years. Okay. Hmm, corrosion. It seemed Nick was very concerned with keeping his shotgun rust-free. He said that he always kept the gun unloaded, but that he kept two shells nearby. While hiding in the closet the morning his wife was killed, Nick said he loaded both rounds into the chamber. Now that things had calmed down, his memory appeared to be serving him much better, as he explained what happened next. So are you going first down the stairs, or is she, is she behind you, or is she in front of you, or what? Um, she's in front, because I'm kind of trying to move her along quickly. Yeah. And then I'm right behind her. Yeah. And then she stops at the console table to grab her wallet, which is sitting on the console table. Console table where? Right in front, right by the front door. First of all, Nick's recollection of events doesn't seem very chivalrous. If someone is breaking into your home and you're holding a shotgun, would you make your wife walk ahead of you and go first? He said that the reason they were headed toward the garage was because that's where their car was and that this supposed escape route was part of a, quote, safety plan the two had previously discussed in the case of such an emergency. Sergeant Gray then asks Nick to describe the intruder once again, perhaps to see if his story changes. What did this guy look like? Is he a white guy, black guy, Asian guy? I think he was a black guy with a dark hooded sweatshirt that was drawn. If I remember right, it was drawn up pretty tight. Yeah. But I did not get a good look because I was looking for Heidi and trying to wrestle the gun away so we could bail. As Nick Ferkus wrestled with the hooded intruder over the gun, he claims he had both hands on the barrel when it suddenly went off. Sergeant Gray then presses on a bit more, asking specifics about the supposed hooded intruder's height and weight. He was really big. Yeah. How big are we talking about? I'm 
five ten, five eleven on a good day. Okay. My, 220 pounds. My twin kid. brother's uh my twin brother's six one, six two. So he's that big? He was probably that big, yeah. So he's six one. But he was he had more weight than my brother. I, I so how much do you think he weighed? Maybe two hundred pounds, maybe. Okay. Well that's kinda of skinny for two hundred for being six one, six two. Yeah. Because I'm two twenty and I'm yeah. I'm not in shape. I used to be back in the day. Yeah, my brother's six one. Wait, my brother's probably a buck eighty. So maybe this guy maybe was two two fifteen, two twenty. Okay. Six one, two hundred pounds. Maybe two twenty, he says. Pretty specific considering Nick Ferkus never mentioned any of this earlier. But again, this must have been an extremely traumatic situation for him. Poor Nick. Sergeant Gray then goes on to reenact the actual struggle with Nick there in the interrogation room. At one point, he picks up one of Nick's crutches that was leaning against the wall and holds it up, mimicking a shotgun. Nick then moves his hand to the area where the trigger would have been on the gun. He has now indicated that he may have actually been the one who inadvertently fired the weapon. Remember, though, what Nick first told police, that the suspect had ripped the gun away from him, at which point the intruder shot his wife. If you're Nick Ferkus, this would have been a great time in the interview to ask for an attorney, but he doesn't. Instead, he continues to roleplay with Sergeant Gray, both of them holding the prop crutch gun as he's walking through each painstaking detail of the struggle. I'm handing the trigger. It kind of, he pushes it up against my chest, yep. which I'm a pretty parallel to the console table. Yep. And um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but the gun went off. So my fingers slipped out of the trigger. So, went off. but you're in the, you're in the foyer area. Mm-hmm. So the stairs are right by the door. Stairs are behind me. Yep. Heidi's going that way. Towards the kitchen? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the guns? Guns here. Yep. Chest high. Yep. Pretty perpendicular, actually pretty parallel to the ground. Okay, so if I was in here, you know, Michael, so if I was, so if you and I, I'm not going to have you stand up because you're like, yeah, okay, but if I'm the bad guy coming through the door mm-hmm. and I got the guard, like door swings open, swings open that way, so it's the other way, yeah, so it swings towards the stairs. Mm-hmm. All right, so you and I would be, so you'd be standing right here, mm-hmm. you and I are like this, yeah, and then the gun goes off, mm-hmm. okay. And it goes off down? Yeah, I, I mean, I know it hit Heidi. I just, I know it did. Okay. I know it did. I don't know where it hit her, but I know it, I know it did hit her. Did it hit her in the chest, the back? She was, in the, she was running away, so it definitely hit her in the back. It hit her in the back. Yeah. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Nick reveals that he didn't believe it was a high shot with regard to the height at which the weapon was raised. But he does confirm that he was the one to accidentally pull the trigger. Having to walk through the specific details of what occurred earlier that day seems to get to Nick as he becomes emotional at this point. He can be seen on video putting his hands to his face while Sergeant Gray steps out to take a phone call. Once he returns, he immediately picks up the crutch again and continues to make Nick Ferkus act out what happened next. So the gun goes off. Yeah. It's like this. 
Mm-hmm. And it goes off down, yeah, down, down the hallway. Yeah. Okay. And it's and yeah, no, it hit her. Did she yell or anything? Like that? Yeah, and she went straight down. Okay. Did she fall face first? Or? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you and this guy are still standing and lit in the foyer. Yeah. Okay. And then I get, I get it up, and yeah, up and over. So you pointed at him? No, it was like straight up and over. Okay, like that. so you're like going barrel to... down. Oh, so the barrel's down. Mm-hmm. Remember, Heidi was discovered laying face up on her back by police, but Nick just said that she fell face forward. His overall demeanor and general presence is noticeably different from when this interview first began. He nervously picks up his water bottle and takes a sip, almost as if he's giving himself an extra moment to think about what he's going to say next. Though Sergeant Gray doesn't yet address the inconsistency in Nick's recollection of events about how Heidi fell forward and face down after being shot in the back, but was then found laying on her back face up by first responders, he would address it later on during the interview when confronted. But alas, Nick's memory suddenly worked just fine again. When you went to when you went to Heidi, she is she face down. When I woke up. No, when, when after this after this oh. guy left. Yeah, she was face. Down. She was face down, and you're not sure if she was hit in the back or the back of the head, or I know she was hit in the back. I just it was high in the back, probably like up towards the shoulder blades. I think so. Okay. All right. So then you you rolled her over. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when she, she did she say anything or nothing no, like that? Nothing. She was totally. Alright. And what would she have around her? Um well she had her sweatpants on and her and her t shirt. Did she have her, her little purse her or little purse and her phone were there too. Okay. That was right next to her? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. And then did, did were you able to then call nine one one then? Yeah, I recalled nine one one to make sure that they were coming and could make it and all that. Sergeant Gray then decides to let off a little bit. And it's at this point in the interview he puts the shotgun crutch down and begins asking Nick about his job, where he's employed at a cleaning business owned by his family. Nick is the director of operations there, doing commercial and residential carpet cleanings. But Sergeant Gray is curious if Nick happens to have any experience in biological cleanups. Let's say, for example, cleaning up blood. So you guys don't do like you know biological cleanup, you know like blood. We've done, we've done, we did one blood cleanup maybe three weeks ago. Yeah, was uh, that you or it was me and and a trainee that I just hired? Where was that? Where did that take place? It's at the lodge, which is a senior housing community. Nick explains that the family business is not insured for crime scene cleanup jobs, but did admit that they cleaned up a senior citizen's blood after she fell and hit her head at a nursing home just a few weeks back. Sergeant Gray is interested in hearing more, specifically about the equipment he used to clean up the old woman's blood. Well, you know, any kind of mechanical device? Or? Yeah, we have a, a little vacuum. Vacuum? Yeah. In fact, in, in that case, we use one that we can, it's about the size of a suitcase. Is that in the truck right now? Um, that particular piece of equipment is not. Okay. Is that back at the office then? Um, in fact, it's actually in my, in my car. Back at the office, yeah. In your car? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why would it be there? Because uh, I, it's that piece of equipment is not just for cleaning up blood, it's just a portable yeah. solution and vacuum. And I had all of my guys out 
Thursday or Friday. Okay. So all of our vans are out and I need to go take care of a customer. So I just threw it in the back of my car. Okay. Hmm. Fascinating. Nick says he conveniently threw the vacuum in the back of his car after a long day of work. Meanwhile, Sergeant Gray is writing all of this down on a pad of paper. Eventually, Nick is asked a pretty fair question. If someone was breaking in and he had a shotgun at the top of the stairs, why not aim it down at the first floor and wait for the intruder to come to them? Nick then explains that he and Heidi were simply following their escape plan. Besides, he didn't have the heart to shoot someone. That's just not the type of guy Nick Fergus was. So that's just kind of, you know, was not the best plan, but it was kind of, if they're not in the house yet, if they're in the house, then our plan is, you know, we'll stay upstairs. We yeah. Well, stick. well, I'm just, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, maybe it's just a cop of me thinking, though, but I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking that if, if I'm in my house, in my bedroom, and someone's breaking my place, you know, she's calling 911, I'm waiting at the top of the stairs and say, hey, Anybody comes up here, you know, it's, you know, last day at Fiji, mm-hmm. you come upstairs, you know, I hate, I hate to tell you this, but my house, you know, I'm justified in killing you if you can break, come break it in my house. Yeah. I'm in fear for my life. You know, that's what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know. And I, yeah, and I guess the, the compassionate person in me is not pulling the trigger. Yeah. So I think that's... That's the hard part about it for me, but, you know, which is why we can't go back. Let's just get out of there. Okay. It's just a house. If we can save ourselves, let's let's do that instead of getting into a situation where, uh-huh. where we're vulnerable. Up to this point in the interview, there were some iffy moments for sure, but nothing Nick Fergus should have to worry too much about, right? I mean, he's the lone survivor after all. And with that being said, roughly halfway through their conversation, Sergeant Gray asks if Nick and Heidi had any problems in their relationship. And eventually, the topic of income and money arises, at which point Nick Furcus offers up an extremely interesting detail about their current living situation. You guys aren't behind in the bills or anything? We are behind in the bills, um, which is a little stressful. In fact, we were planning on moving tomorrow. Uh, moving where? Well, we hadn't figured that out yet. We were, and, and this is a, our... It's a hard place for us. Uh, we've, we're foreclosing on our, we foreclosed on our house. Okay. We have to be out by Monday. Tomorrow, one of the reasons I brought the van home was also because it has a trailer. I chose to go back to the office and grab a trailer. Um, so you have to be out by Monday? We do out by Monday. We've been, this has been kind of a private struggle for us. If you didn't happen to catch that, Nick explains that they were behind on their bills and that he and his wife's home had been recently foreclosed on. Not only were they being evicted, but they needed to be out of the house by Monday. Keep in mind that the day this interview took place, the same day Heidi Furcus was murdered just a few hours before, was Sunday, as in the very day before they were legally obligated to be out of the house. Well, that's kind of, I mean, kind of close notice. It is, and I think the reason is because we're both kind of dealing with the shame of the whole thing, um, because we're embarrassed. Um, Both of us are are too stubborn to admit that we're failing. Okay. So you you and her never mentioned this to either either set of parents? None of our parents or none of our friends. No one knows about this except you and I. And I. And I. That's right. Okay. Nick claimed that the only people who knew about the foreclosure was himself and Heidi. He said that they were embarrassed about their current situation 
and that they were planning to stay with either friends or family while they figured out their next step, though they hadn't told anyone yet. In addition to the strange timing of all of this, nothing in the house had been packed up yet. No furniture had been moved, and the refrigerator was still stocked with food. Though there were a few boxes found in the home and even more in the basement, there were no significant signs of a big move set to occur within the next 24 hours. But Nick explains that he and Heidi were set to take care of all of it the day she was killed. The packing, the moving, everything. Um, you know, I... I came to the house, you know, I'm looking around you know, the main floor a little bit there. Yeah. And I saw some boxes in the dining room area. Yeah. There weren't a lot of boxes there. It's a whole bunch in the basement. A whole bunch in the basement? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then we were going to go to Home Depot when I went to pick up the trip. I bought a whole bunch more. I've moved out of houses before and I've helped friends move out of houses before too, Nick. It just seems like you're kind of... You know, putting yourself against the clock. I mean, if you're, yeah, if you if you knew this train was coming, you know, you kind of get ready for it. Yeah, I think a part a part of it is just for us a significant part of it is the shame of the whole thing. We're pretty crippled by it. The, I think a good thing for us is we're organized people, so we've got a lot of stuff in like rubber containers that we can just start. Okay. We felt like it could take us eight or ten hours to have most of our stuff out. That's ready, like most of our furniture and things like that. Well, how you get? Where were you guys gonna put the furniture? We were gonna keep it in the trailer for work. Okay. Um, what kind of trailer are we talking about? How big is this trailer? Well, it's a. Uh, I mean, well, let me qualify that by saying we were gonna put a significant amount of it into the garage, and then. And the reason is, is because when I was talking to the people who are managing kind of. Out of our world with the foreclosure stuff. They yeah. Said, they said that if we can get it out of the house and into the garage, they'd still let us come back and pull some stuff out. Throughout the interview, Nick Furcus continues offering up more key details about the couple's financial troubles, which he said had been an ongoing strain on their relationship. At one point during the interview, Nick says that the night before Heidi was killed, the two were going over their finances together, something he hadn't mentioned before. Perhaps it had just slipped his mind as a result of having that glass of wine the night before. Anyhow, when asked if there were any life insurance policies taken out in either of their names, Nick said no, but he did go on to say that he'd met with an agent who handles such policies just three weeks before. And just when you think Nick Furcus might be done talking, he just keeps on going, providing perhaps a little too much information to his own detriment. He says that he and Heidi had two intimacy issues and that having sex together was painful. This could mean a number of things, but we won't get into that. At about 90 minutes into the interview, Sergeant Gray's line of questioning and the atmosphere in the room begins to shift from an interview into a full-blown interrogation when he asks Nick to explain the blood they found in the basement. There's a lot of blood downstairs. There's a lot of blood downstairs? Yeah. Well, um... I'm trying to figure out how that got down there. The only thing that I could think of is if it went through our, that particular area in our kitchen, the flooring is really in terrible shape. So that's the only, the only thing I could think of is if it, if it ran into the basement. The confrontation is more than likely a bluff to see if Nick will slip up or change his story. Sergeant Gray also challenges the angle at which Nick said the gun was pointed when he was shot. He asks why there were no gunshot pellet markings on the floor, 
if the barrel was supposedly pointed downward like he had claimed. We should also point out here that Nick apparently doesn't know that his wife is deceased yet, but he doesn't ask how she's doing either, not until over an hour into this particular interview. Although, if you remember, he does scream aloud during the 911 call, my wife is dead. When Sergeant Gray confirms the inevitable with Nick during the interview, revealing that Heidi Furcus has indeed passed away as a result of her injuries, he says, quote, I'm just assuming the worst. Nevertheless, one hour and 40 minutes in, Sergeant Gray finally decides to break the news. Do you have any questions for me, Nick? Uh, well, I, I just want to know the final answer on uh, the final answer on Heidi. Um, and I want to know, I just, just want to know if you found anything yet as far as the guys that did this. Well, there's a couple parts of my job that I really hate. This is one of them. She hit me. I figured that. I figured that is Nick's response after being told that his wife is dead. In the grainy footage, Nick Ferkus can be seen pinching his nose between his index finger and thumb after he's told the tragic news that Heidi didn't make it. He doesn't respond, cry, or show much emotion at all. Instead, he sits there despondent, looking toward the floor for several moments before placing his head down to his folded arms and onto the table. After about two minutes of awkward silence, Sergeant Gray leaves the room to give him some time to process. The entire time he sits alone, folded over that table, he makes no sound. There's no crying or any emotion heard via the interrogation footage whatsoever. When Sergeant Gray eventually returns back to the room, he asks the one question everyone's been waiting for. Did you kill your wife? Nick, I, you know, part of me wants to ask you this question. Did you have anything to do with this? No, absolutely not. Okay. Absolutely not. All right. Why is there a party that wants to ask that? Well, Nick, I'm a police officer, okay? Yeah. I got to ask the tough questions, all right? And that's a, you know, that's a, t- that's a tough question I got to ask. You know, there's no, there's no easy way to do it. You know? And, you know, with the information you gave me and everything going on out here, I mean, it, I, it, I'd be remiss. I'd be a bad cop if I didn't ask that question. As any good husband might, Nicholas Ferkus seems mildly offended by the inquiry. His family was waiting for him outside of that interrogation room right in the precinct hallway. As the door opens, Nick's mother comes rushing in. She hugs her son as he begins to sob uncontrollably for the very first time in this entire recording. Heidi Marie Furcus, December 14, 1984 to April 25, 2010. Joyful child of God. Age 25 of St. Paul, died unexpectedly. Heidi committed her life to the Lord Jesus Christ as a young girl and faithfully walked with Him. She loved and was loved by her family and many wonderful friends. Preceded in death by grandparents Mendel and Dorothy Erickson, survived by loving husband Nick. The information regarding Heidi's eventual funeral services were listed at the bottom of her obituary. The service was to be held at the very same church she grew up in, the Calvary Church in Roseville. Heidi met Nick Furcus here as well, fresh out of high school just seven years before. It's where they got married. Nick arrived at the funeral still on crutches. Friends consoled him over the tragic, untimely loss of his wife. 
even took to the podium to say a few words about the woman he allegedly loved so deeply. After Heidi's murder, Nick went back to stay with his parents. They, as well as the entire church community, of which he was so integral a member, rallied around him. They saw Nicholas Ferkus as the victim of a horrendous crime and a grieving husband. But not everyone was Team Nick from day one, specifically Heidi's parents. You see, after the big secret regarding the couple's foreclosure eventually got out, Nick was forced to address his and Heidi's family about everything. In fact, they all sat down together as he laid out how he and Heidi were simply in over their heads, both of them apparently too prideful to ask anyone for help. At one point during that conversation, Heidi's father, Mr. Erickson, told Nick not to worry and assured him that whoever did this would be caught. To both Heidi's father and mother's surprise, Nick responded by saying something along the lines of, They'll never find out who did this. Perhaps the comment was made out of sheer exhaustion and devastation. After all, he had just lost his beloved wife. But perhaps it meant something more. Either way, Heidi's parents made a mental note of Nick's bizarrely timed remark. And that was the day they began to question whether or not Nicholas Ferkus knew more than he was letting on in relation to their daughter, Heidi Marie Ferkus's murder. But if their intuition was at all correct, what could this so-called man of God possibly be hiding? Stay tuned for part two next time. Or subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash invisiblechoir for the ad-free early release version available right now. Was there an intruder or was there not? The murder of Heidi Furcus boils down to that. It's been 4,043 days since Heidi was shot and killed in her own home more than 11 years ago. And I can say with absolute certainty that someone in the St. Paul Police Department thought about her, her family, and this case each and every day. Nick even used a private sketch artist to render this composite, looking very similar to a known St. Paul burglar at that time. 